I want you to talk a little bit about the police strategies and what's been going on and how that's affected youth and how they've impacted the growing criminalization of youth. And then if you talk a little bit about what your project is, is doing. Sure. Well, you know, again, just for reflection's sake and also to just put me in historical context, right, I grew up in the early, eight, late 80s, early 90s. I was going to age myself more, but I'm not that old. <laughs> but I did grow up in South L.A., but primarily also in Pico Union. And, you know, in some ways, uh, I also faced, you know, and I was in my neighborhood, I was kind of like the nerd in my neighborhood and still faced the type of, you know, police suppression tactics and harassment and, and profiling in the by, by, by Rampart Division through, you know, the rise of the crash unit in my own neighborhood. So, you know, in some ways, I'm not very neutral on this question on how it both impacted my life, but more importantly, how it impacted my own family life, you know. Both my family, you know, I have a near cousin my age who has been institutionalized by one form or fashion from the very same age that he was 14. And so it just shows you how life can shift you and a younger cousin who just passed away three years ago through gun violence. So in many ways, I guess I've seen all sides of this, but it's also important to um, come back to this question that you asked. I think that we have to be honest with ourselves that race, the law, law enforcement, in some ways, are always very intertwined. And obviously, in one level, we can sort of, you know, speak about it as a form of social control. On the other side, it also, the law, race, and law enforcement is a good measure to understand, you know, uh, our measure, our... Uh, of how we are on the issues of human, civil, and our full citizenship rights. Because the, mo the moment that they undermine the possibility of tr really trying to address, you know, the impacts of suppression in our community, criminalization in our community, I think it raises broader questions about the, the need to have a, a, a big vision about how do we enforce rights, how do we expand rights in a time period when those have been undermined. So, you know, I, I've, you know, at the Labor Community Strategy Center, we've, you know, a think tank, act tank. And about 10 years ago, we started organizing young people. Uh, to be honest, on one hand, it was sort of a, we saw that there, a, lot, a lot of people were organizing young people. And we also saw that there was a, a real need to um, do a lot of organizing that was uh, intergenerational. In many ways, there had been a, a, the rise of a lot of youth organizations, but in many ways they weren't really tied to a much more broader inter intergenerational sort of movement. So 10 years ago we started organizing actually bus, uh, youth as bus riders for the demand for uh, an accessible bus pass. Uh, MTA was denying them the full possibility to having an accessible low-income bus pass. So by the time somebody turned, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, instead of, instead of having a $20 bus pass, they often were paying regular fare as an adult every time they got on the bus, or more importantly, paid, you know, at that time it was a $42 to $52 bus pass, or lastly, just walked to school. And, you know, it was a great, great campaign. We actually won it, and the usage of that pass uh, went up by a thousand percent. But in that process, we, it really shocked us to see the amount of, of confrontation that young people had with law enforcement. So the first flyer that we ever had was because young people were telling us, well, check it out, I love that I want to fight for this bus pass, but guess what? When I go to school, when I get off the bus, police are often waiting for me, you know, giving me a $250 ticket, searching me, handcuffing me, 
taking me to either a processing center or back into the cafeteria. And, you know, I missed the first two periods and it creates a lot of tensions in the home, right? And so, and it makes me feel basically like a common criminal, right. the way that they're treating me, right? And so we felt that when we looked at that and yet at the, and the other reality that also, you know, in some ways, the last 20 years, while we could say there's a lot of measurements of success, we also have to be very honest with ourselves that we have to look at the mass incarceration of our communities as a real thing. I mean, we have now 2.4 million people in prison, almost close to 7 million people in some relationship to the justice system. Now, and of course, you know, if the, the, the darker shade you are, the more possibility that you're going to have that confrontation with that. And I think we have to, we felt that we as an organization needed to address this, you know, you know, full, full force because in some ways it was playing out, not because, you know, there is a movement to stop the school to prison pipeline, but we also think that the school in some, way, in some ways is the continuation of that prison culture that young people are very taught, right? I mean, education is in some ways all, is another form of social control. In some ways, obviously, it's an uplift for people, but we also have to understand that education also policy also goes hand in hand with where are we economically, where are we socially, where are we politically as a nation, and what kind of rights do we want to really expand for people and why our communities have fought it. And so, you know, in 1995, uh, Los Angeles, through, um, through modeling other smaller cities across the, across the county, implemented a daytime curfew law. Now, we had a nighttime curfew law. I remember those. Those probably were implemented in sort of the late 80s, you know, during the time period of, you know, Operation Hammer, you know, sort of like, which basically restricts your ability to go at night. I mean, again, if we put this, I know this is going to sound hyperbole to some people, but if we put this into context, right, it's like the vagrancy laws of right after the time period of slavery. It's in many ways here in California, we have our own long history of it through, you know, the greaser laws, vagrancy laws that passed right after occupation when the U.S. took over Mexico. So we have to understand that in some ways, these are all a continuation about who's the suspicious and who can we stop. And in reality, while a lot of cl people claim that it's for stopping you know, uh, crime. In reality, it's there to justify stopping you, most likely searching you, which is illegal, but they still search you, right? And it's the whole sort of ability to get rid of uh, the Fourth Amendment and, you know, stop and seizure goes out the door by basically creating the justification to stop you because, in essence, that's what this law is about. It's the justification to stop you. So in 1995, the city passed this daytime curfew law. It meant that from the time of 8.30 to 1.30, you couldn't be on the street. Now, uh, and, and, and the way in, in theory was that you were going to stop the young people who were truant to school, who weren't going to school, who were ditching the school. But in reality, in practice, as we had seen it from as early as 2000, who it really was impacting was young people who were actually heading towards school. Or worse, you know, we had certain policies at certain schools that actually had expanded the program, that if you were late to a classroom, they would give you the ticket. Or they had these weird, you know, illegal or extra illegal, I guess, uh, uh, rules that if you're late to school three uh, to class or, or late to school three times, then they can justify giving you the ticket. Completely illegal because that's not even the way the law is written, right? And and in some ways also it was a response to the actual activism of young people. So, you know, we have you know our our daytime curfew came in 1995, right after the 1994 walkouts of a lot of students, and back in 2000 and six, we had another expansion of that law where they expanded from bell to bell. So from the moment your bell rang, because it used to be, remember, 8.30 to 1.30, now from bell to bell, they were able, would be able to ticket you under this due, due daytime curfew law. 
Um, and of course, that in some ways was also a response to the walkouts that young people had done against the Simpson Brenner Bill, the anti immigrant bill that had happened, right? And so, um, so in many ways, that's how it played out. And we have, have been launched a campaign about 10 years ago to stop these tickets. Um, we felt that, you know, again, it was a, another form of ways that young people get punished. You know, we can come back later on a, a broad, broader conversation of kind of punishment culture that our schools have, but these tickets really were undermining the possibility of education for young people. They were actually deterring young people. When so we, when we surveyed young people at their schools, they were saying, hey, I don't even want to show up to school. And the parents actually even encouraged that. Like, hey, if you're going to go and get a $250, and mind you, that's a $250 ticket that goes to $1,000 by the time court fees and fines kick in. Um, and often, you know, we had young people who had owed thousands of dollars. And of course, when, you, when we were able to finally get the data from LAPD, which is good, you know, that there is some level of transparency, right, from the, from the police. Uh, then this was from LAPD. It showed that between 2004 and 2010, 55,000 tickets were given out. That, you know, over close to 90 to 93 percent of the tickets were given to young people of color. Uh, African-American youth who probably don't make no more than 9 percent of the city population were close to 25 percent of those getting the youth. And when we, were, when we got support from the investment project to map where those tickets were given out, right? When we literally, because we knew it was sort of intuitively that it was happening in our neighborhoods. But when we literally saw block, block hot spots of where these tickets were given, where, guess what? Where do you guys think those South tickets LA, were going? South LA, East LA, East Valley, right? That's sort of the three little triumphant dots that existed, right? And then so... Um, we were able to organize ourselves. Our, our, we organized throughout the city through, uh, to stop this, this law. And in some ways, you know, the, the good side of this is that we were able to change the law, right? And uh, that's just fresh. You know, it was two months ago where the city council, with the support of many people who are in, in this panel, but many organizations across the city, to reverse sort of this trend. And, you know, I would say also in terms of the shift of, of the leadership and sort of the ideology of police, I don't, in many ways, believe that police, to me, I still think we have to have a very critical point of view about what is the function of law enforcement. But on the flip side, you know, when we had to negotiate with law enforcement, who did I we had to negotiate? We negotiated with Earl Perkins, right, the highest black chief here in LAPD. It, I think it made a big difference in that conversation, right? He himself had to reflect that he's arrested close to a million people when he was the commander of South L.A., Right, and that in many ways, what's the real value on that? What's the real impacts that that's had? Right, has a real conversation about the 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 dialectics of negotiations in that conversation. Right, I don't know how that would have looked at five, ten years ago. Right, as a conversation, but we have to really comprehend then that in some ways we still have to make major shifts in 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 a lot of the things that young people are confronting. We have the largest school police in the in in the country. We have almost six hundred officers. Uh, it just came out that, it which we were able to grab from them and extract from them, that they've given out in just in the last three years about 33,000 tickets to young people. All of these are low-level so-called offenses, you know, uh, ditching, tardiness, uh, 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 disturbing the peace, which is the most disturbing aspect of it because disturbing the peace means, you know, school fights and throwing tantrums in the classrooms are now being criminalized. And I think there's a, a lot of work to be done. But the great thing is that I do think Los Angeles is a hotbed of that type of activity that is not only just building here in Los Angeles, um, but more importantly, across the country. That's great.